Okay. Uh, if you know anything about me, you know that one of my uh, loves in life are cars. I, I love cars. I love old muscle cars specifically. My uh, father used to race cars, uh, and so from a very early age, uh, I, I'd been around cars. So he also put graphics and pinstriping and things like that on cars. So I was always around cars, and we always had old cars. In fact, my, uh, some of my earliest memories of my dad are him working on the 66 Suburban we had. Uh, it was painted, uh, the Dodge Vipers had just come out, and they had that Viper yellow, and my dad painted a 66 Suburban Viper yellow, and it was, it was, aw- it was awesome. And, uh, my first car was a 69 Chevrolet Chevelle, still have it. Uh, it's back in Colorado, Need, needs a few things to, to finish it up, but it's close. Someday maybe you'll see it out here when I have a garage. But I love old cars. I just loved everything about them, uh, I, especially their uh, their styling. They have so much more character, I think, than modern cars, especially cars from, you know, like the mid-70s to the mid-2000s. I just thought that they were always kind of boring. I loved the, the character of old muscle cars. But, of course, what everybody, and myself included, really loves about old muscle cars are the engines. The engines were powerful. You could get uh, V8s in those cars that, for insurance purposes, were rated at like 350 or 375 horsepower. But in reality, those engines were pushing out more like 425 or 450 or even some of them 500 horsepower. That's what I love about those old cars was, was the power. Most of my weekends in high school were spent uh, at the drag strip. I could actually build an engine before I could legally drive. And uh, I loved going to the drag strip. I got to pit crew on a car there. And there's nothing like being around all that power. I loved it. And when I was 19, uh, I actually got the privilege of driving that car that I had pit crewed on. And uh, I was really excited. I, I pulled up... Um, that day, and I was just, I was jittery, I was a little nervous. That's a lot of, a lot of power. It's far faster than any production car uh, out there. And so I, w- I was a little nervous. Um, but I got there, I, I got in the car, and as soon as they called the class I was racing and down for our first time trials, I was like the third car down there. And I, I w- the owner of the car was like, hey, do you want to like take a moment, calm down, let a few other cars go before you? No, 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 I want to go, I'm ready to go. He's like, all right. So uh, we get down there, I, I pull through the staging lanes and up to the starting line, and as soon as the lights on that Christmas tree went, I nailed the gas. That car sucked me right back into the seat. You know, I'm holding on, I, I make sure I hit all my shift points, but the power was unbelievable. I can't really describe what it was like driving that car. That's something you would have to experience on your own. That power just really appealed to me. And it was, I got a taste of it, and I I can tell you, I've just wanted more of it ever since. Uh, Horsepower, of course, we're talking here. (laughs) But um, there's something else I love about old muscle cars, and that's watching them just drive down the road at like 25 or 30 miles an hour. 
where you just you hear the engine. And you know that at any instant, if the driver would have put his foot down, that car would light up the rear tires and there'd just be huge clouds of smoke going up. If he wanted to, that driver could be going 130 down the road like it was nothing. There's something about that to me, just watching that car with all that power just smoothly cruise down the road. Lexus has, has caught on to this phenomenon. If you've seen their most recent commercials, Lexus talks about their newest car and all the horsepower it has. But then it also talks about the braking power and the handling that this car has. And it ends with the, the tagline on the commercial states that the ultimate expression of power is restraint. And I thought, how true. That's one of the things I love about watching those muscle cars go down the road is there's all that power, and yet it's being restrained. Now, if that's true, if the ultimate expression of power is restraint, then we are going to see that ultimately today. We're going to see the ultimate example of that. Let's start in John 18, 1 through 4. We'll start with those first four verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, and these words that he just spoken were was the high priestly prayer that uh, Joey has preached on the last two weeks. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? So sometime after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, uh, but before Passover, the Pharisees and the priests had gotten together. And they had come up with this plan, uh, this plot to capture and kill Jesus. Now a threat on Jesus' life really wasn't anything new. We call this series, this sermon series, the Defiant Incarnation for a reason. Jesus defied everything that the Pharisees and the priests wanted their Messiah to be. When the Messiah came, he was totally different than they expected. He came not encouraging what they had done, but rather rebuking them. Jesus wasn't well liked by the Pharisees and the priests. And so they'd many times before, um, kind of in the heat of the moment, uh, tried to seize Jesus, but Jesus had always escaped. Well, this time is a little different. They are plotting beforehand. They know it's Passover. They know that all the Jews from everywhere are going to be coming to Jerusalem. And so they start spreading the word that they want people to tell them when they see Jesus. They want informants. And the informant that they get is better than I think they could have possibly hoped for. Because the informant that they're going to get isn't just some person who has seen Jesus once or twice or heard one or two of his sermons. The informant they get is one of the twelve. One of the twelve disciples. One of the men who had been with Jesus day and night for three years. 
who would have known all his habits, known all of his favorite places to be. Someone who would have known Jesus' joys and his pains. One of Jesus' inner circle. Judas, who they had actually entrusted with their money. The whole group entrusted Judas with the money. Later came out that he was stealing from that as well. This is a man that is in Jesus' inner trusted circle. So Judas is who leads them in to the garden. I remember the first time that I was ever betrayed. I'm going to warn you that this example is very small and insignificant compared to what Jesus goes through, but it still struck me what it was like to be betrayed. I was six years old. We had just moved into a new house in Denver. And about three houses down, there was a a boy down the street the same age as, as I was. And he was over playing, and we found the scissors. And what are six-year-old boys going to do with scissors? They're going to give themselves haircuts. Right? That's the logical step when you find scissors. So he was like, hey, let's, let's cut our own hair. I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So he takes some of his bangs, and he cuts his hair, and hands me the scissors. I take some of my bangs. I cut my hair. My mom, of course, found out pretty quickly. She laughed it off for the most part. You know, it was a hair. We can go get it cut. Not that big a deal. But a few days later, we were down at our neighbor's house. The boy and his mom were out in their driveway, and his mom starts getting mad at me for cutting his hair. I was like, excuse me? He had told her that I cut his hair. Like, it just took the wind right out of me. I was like, how? Dude, we were in this together. You cut your own hair. I didn't even cut your hair. You cut your own, and yet to get out of trouble, you're telling your mom, I cut your hair. We lived in that house almost another 10 years, and if I talked to that kid 10 more times, I'd be surprised. Because he had betrayed me. Something we were in together... He lied about what I had done. He sold me out to his mom so that I would take his mom's wrath instead of him. All right, now multiply that small instance infinitely, really. And that's what you have here. We were two kids doing something dumb, doing something we shouldn't have been doing. Jesus has done none of that. Jesus has always treated Judas fairly. He has always taken care of Judas. And yet, here it is. It is Judas who walks these soldiers right into the garden where he knows Jesus likes to go. That, that is just mind-blowing, that betrayal. But Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus steps forward. And it says that he knew what was about to happen to him. So we just fast forward over the next 24 hours here. Let's think about what is going to happen to Jesus. He's going to be arrested by these men. He's going to be taken. He's going to be blindfolded. And he's going to be beaten. And the people who are beating him are going to mock him and ask him to prophesy who it is that's hitting him. Then he's going to be handed over to Pilate, handed over to the Romans, where he's going to be flogged with a whip 
that had tiny metal balls and shards of bone and shards of pottery tied in the whip so that when it whipped you, it cut you deeply. In fact, there were many prisoners that never survived that flogging. When they would stand them up afterwards, their organs would just fall out of their back. Jesus knows that is what's coming. Jesus knows that after all of that, he's then going to be crucified. His arms and his feet are going to be nailed to the cross. He is going to take on sin and be cut off from the Father who he has had perfect communion with forever. Not just since the beginning of the world, but for all of eternity. Jesus knows that that's what he's stepping into. And he steps up and he says, Whom do you seek? John 18.5 They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus isn't trying to slough anything off here. He came straight forward. When they say they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. And what is their reaction? It's not that they all rush forward on him. They outnumbered them by quite a bit. They didn't all just rush forward and jump on him and arrest him. No, instead they drew back and they fall to the ground. See, people knew who Jesus was. They knew that Jesus had power. Just Let's just stick with what we've gone through in John. In John, we have seen Jesus turn water into wine. We have seen Jesus heal the sick. We have seen Jesus take food that was really only enough to feed two or three men and feed 5,000 with it. And we have seen Jesus raise a man from the dead who had been dead for four days. So Jesus has power over the basic elements. Jesus has power over sickness, and Jesus has power over life and death. And I'm sure these men are expecting some display of power at this point as they're coming forward to arrest him. So what do they do? They hit the deck. When I was 14, we had um, I was on a, a baseball team, and we had a, a tournament for the 4th of July. And uh, our coach and one of the other dads brought a big bag of fireworks. And I'm not talking like sparklers. I'm talking like quarter sticks of dynamite and uh, bottle rockets. And, of course, the, the uh, ones that shoot up and go in the air, they look like the professional displays, but they're not quite that big. So there's, you know... 12, 14-year-old boys running around with this bag of fireworks, and we're doing dumb stuff like throwing those quarter sticks of dynamite into porta-potties, you know, watching it, like, literally blow the toilet seat off, you know, fun stuff like that, uh, shooting bottle rockets at each other, and then at night, we're setting off the big fireworks. Well, one of the tubes fell over. We were trying to light, like, four of them at once, 
and one of the tubes falls over. And man, what did we do? We stepped back and we fell to the ground because we're hoping that whatever comes out of that tube is going over our head and nobody gets hurt. And thankfully, that is exactly what happened. It went down the street over our heads. Nobody got hurt. But we, we didn't want to be in the way of that. Well, these men don't want to be in the way of Jesus if he decides to really display his power. But no great display of power occurs here. Let's continue on in John 18, 7 uh, through 9 now. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus probably just could have walked straight out of the garden at this point. All the men had hit the ground. They're not really in a position to catch him. He could have taken his 11 remaining disciples, just walked straight out of the garden. But instead, Jesus asked the men again, Whom do you seek? And again they say the same thing. Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus again tells them, I am He. Jesus isn't going anywhere. And we're going to see why in just a minute. He doesn't take advantage of this clear opportunity that He could just get out of the garden, go back to, to the Sea of Galilee, have a nice career fishing. No, He sticks around instead. And then, he does something amazing. Something that really separates Jesus from many, many leaders. Jesus makes sure that his men are free to go. So I'm the one you want. These men with me, let them go. I think of someone like Jim Jones in Jonestown. When the walls were closing around Jim Jones, what did he do? He had all of his followers drink Kool-Aid that had cyanide in it so that they would all die with him. Or what about someone like Hitler? Hitler, as the Allies are closing in around him, rather than standing up, trying to get some favorable conditions for the German people for surrender, Instead of protecting them, what does he do? He tells the SS to go into the mountains of Bavaria, keep fighting, and then he takes a gun and puts it to his head and pulls the trigger. And Germany did not get very favorable terms of surrender, and it took them a long, long time to recover. But Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He makes sure that his followers... His disciples are taken care of here, that they can escape freely. And he does this fulfilling something he just prayed that Joey preached on a couple weeks back, that he is not going to lose one of those whom he has been given. Not one. That 
is amazing. That shows so much the heart of Jesus. How he is, as Joffrey preached a while back, he is truly the good shepherd. He is protecting his sheep here. His sheep do something interesting though. Let's read John 18.10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. I love Peter, just for the record. Uh, and I, I actually, I, I love Peter's heart in this situation. Even though he has just gotten the opportunity to go free, he's like, no, I'm not abandoning Jesus, which is kind of funny when we preach on what we're going to preach next, or what I'll preach on next week. Uh, but in this very moment, Peter draws the sword, and he runs in, and he takes a hack at someone, and he gets their ear. Not a very effective attack. But Jesus quickly calms the situation. Jesus tells Peter to put his sword back in his sheath. Think about what Peter is really doing here and kind of the ridiculousness of the situation. All those things we talked about Jesus doing. All the power we know Jesus has. Does Jesus in any way need Peter's help here? He doesn't need Peter's help. He doesn't need Peter to cut these men down so that he can escape. Jesus really just had the chance to escape and didn't take it. In no way does Jesus need Peter's attempt at help here. And so he tells Peter again, put your sword away into its sheath. In Matthew's account of this story, he also tells Peter Do you not think that I could appeal to my Father and that He would at once send twelve legions of angels? Of course His Father would if that's what He appealed to Him for. Jesus doesn't need Peter's help here. And this is really strange actually at this point in the story. If you were watching a movie or reading a book and the hero is cornered by his enemies and you know it's the end of the story, what do you expect? You would expect Jesus to call down those 12 legions of angels. You would have expected Jesus and all the disciples to draw their swords, running in, just cutting down these servants, making their escape to the Sea of Galilee, getting on their boats with triumphant music in the background as they sail off into the sunset. That's what you expect out of a movie or out of a book. That's not what Jesus does at all. Tells Peter to put his sword away. And then he really reveals his heart in the whole matter. He said, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? See, Jesus didn't come to be some earthly king, he didn't come to just be a moral teacher. Jesus came because it was the Father's will that He would come, that He would die on the cross for our sins, that He would rise again. 
Jesus came to glorify God the Father, and how he was going to be able to do that was in his death and in his resurrection. He withheld all that power at this moment for God's glory and for our salvation. Because if he doesn't go through with this, then why did Jesus even come? Why would he have come and lived 33 years in a human body, which he didn't have to do, leaving paradise where he had spent eternity with his Father? If Jesus doesn't go through with this to bring God glory and for our salvation, then why would he have come at all? It is for this very reason, to be arrested and to be crucified, that Jesus has come. So he shows restraint. That should be a beautiful, beautiful thing to us. It should also cause us to realize that we're called to the same thing. When we are wronged, we're called to forgiveness. When the world is telling us that this is the only life we have and what's most important is you and what makes you happy, we are called to love God and called to love others more than we love ourselves. Other people harm us and we have the power of revenge in our hands. We are called to restraint. We are called to forgive. There was a missionary named Jim Elliot. For those of you who have never heard of Jim Elliot or his story, he was a missionary to Ecuador in the 1950s. And uh, he was down there with several other men, and they all had wives, and they had all moved to uh, Ecuador to reach a group of people called the Warani people, who had basically had no... Uh, no contact with the outside world at all. There was, there was this group of tribes and uh, the leading cause of death in this group of tribes was murder. 60% of these people were dying, uh, of their deaths were due to murder by other tribes. So I'm thinking if this is the area I'm going into, I want to be armed. I mean, these people, are, when I say they're killing each other, they're doing it with knives and spears and blow darts. They're not technologically advanced. And my first instinct would be, if I'm going down there, I want a gun. You know, I want to be armed. I want to protect myself. But that was not the attitude these missionaries had at all. They went down unarmed. Amongst the whole group, they had one revolver. And it, was, it wasn't for taking in... Uh, to be with these group of people uh, at all. They, they had that one gun. Obviously, that would not be enough if that was their intentions going in there. They'd had some promising contact uh, with the, the tribes, and in fact, they'd even given uh, one of the guys a ride in their airplane 
So imagine that you are, uh, you know, one moment you're throwing a spear and using a blow dart to hunt, and uh, the next moment you've been invited to fly around in this airplane that uh, you've, you've seen in the sky once or twice but have no idea what it really is. Uh, and so they're really encouraged by this contact. And so they decide they're, they're going to try and make closer contact. And they fly their plane in and they land on this sandbar in a river in Ecuador. And a group of men jump out and they spear them. Five men down, dead. All of them with wives, some of them with kids. They find them in the river days later. The wives had a choice. Sorry. They could have exacted revenge. Think of the weapons. This is post-World War II. Think of the weapons they have available to them, especially in South America at this time. They could have gone in and laid waste to all of those villages. They could have hired people. They could have taken their revenge. Instead, they went back. They forgave those people. They proclaimed the gospel and they lived the gospel out in front of them. And the church was established there. People came to Christ because they chose to forgive. Because they chose to share the gospel with them. That is what Jesus calls us to. Seeing this should drive us towards that. Should call us to forgive those around us. Should call us to live a life of obedience to God. Proclaiming the gospel to everybody we know, living that way where we consider others more important than ourselves, where we consider God's call on our lives more important than anything else. That is what we are called to. And we have the perfect example of it in front of us in Jesus. He could have killed all those men, justifiably so. And instead, He chose to glorify God the Father. He chose to go with Him, to be arrested, to be crucified for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God. That is the most beautiful news there is. That is, this should be one of the most beautiful things you have ever heard. And may we be a church that does that, that lives a life out in front of people that proclaims the gospel, where we extend forgiveness, where we extend the gospel. 
and where we are willing to give it all up, no matter what it is, for God's glory. Because that is what we value most.